Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. So hello, my name's Maeve Marsden and I'm your host for today. I'm a writer and theatre maker who's probably best known for curating national storytelling project Queer Stories. As a lo- oh yeah, give us a round of applause, why not? I started by introducing myself. Um, my love of storytelling means I'm thrilled to be chatting here today with Clementine and Bright. Clementine, <laughs> good. Clementine and Brighty about their most recent books. Um, both Clem and Brighty are pretty well-known faces, so I'll do, if you've just wandered in here by accident, I'll do the condensed bio. Clementine Ford is the best-selling author of Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, which have also been published in the UK and US. Her most recent book is How We Love. Give Clementine running. Thank you. And then next along the line, Bridie Jabour is the opinion editor at The Guardian. She is the author of novel The Way Things Should Be and the book of essays Trivial Grievances on the Contradictions, Myths and Misery of Your Thirties. Let's get into it. Yeah, round of applause, Bridie. This is a spontaneous cheer and applause friendly space. Bridie, you started your book on the premise that every 31-year-old you knew was miserable. But by the end of writing it, you'd concluded that you yourself were in quite, in fact, quite happy. <laughs> um, happiness is often considered a bit cringe or, or lacking in awareness that the world is so full of misery, how could you possibly be joyful? It's election day, which will be either a happy or miserable occasion, depending on your leanings. How do you feel about happiness and millennial malaise now that you've written your book? Do you know what's funny? When I... When I first started exploring this idea of millennials being miserable in their early 30s, I noticed noticed it as a trend among my friends and I wrote a piece for The Guardian that went viral. It got like 800,000 hits and I got asked on radio shows in America and England from it Mm. and it really struck a chord. And I could see it had struck a chord. That piece about, you know, misery and anxiety about the world and unhappiness was published in 2019, (laughs) which seems so quaint now. (laughs) And it was, I can't, I think the bushfires must have been happening when it was published, but obviously everything else had not, oh, maybe the bushfires hadn't happened actually. That was the end of 2019. So Mm. the bushfires hadn't even happened. Anyway, so that seems very quaint now. But as I was writing the book, um, I did have a friend pull me up when I was talking to him about this book and showed him a chapter. And he was the one who really drew it out of me and said, um, but this isn't you. You're one Mm. of the happiest people I know. Like, you are a content person, which is true. And it was sort of, I guess, like my weird little truth and uh, it became an explore and then I had to be honest about that and once he pushed me to be honest it became I think a much more interesting book and also the other thing that happened with the book is that the journalist in me I went to experts so I I interviewed demographers psychiatrists psychologists um, historians like you know Mm -hmm. basically everyone that you can interview in that kind of space and um, basically found there was nothing unique about millennials feelings in their 30s and Mm. lots of other generations had felt this way before, which I kind of loved because I loved having a premise get completely taken apart and then I spent the rest of the book exploring that and building on it. It became, it ended up, I think, becoming an exploration of like how to be in the world basically Mm. and what makes a good life. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the experts and one of the things I really loved about Trivial Grievances is that you interviewed experts, but you also interviewed a bunch of your mates, and you gave them equal weight. 
And the thing about that is that's how we go about our lives, right? We take advice from our friends and then we try to take on expert knowledge and we give them equal weight even if our friends know shit all about the thing we've asked them. Can you just give us a bit more information about that research process and the decision to do that, to kind of include your social um, circle as much as you included the experts you just mentioned? It's not very good journalistic practice, is it? <laughs> like, I interviewed the experts, and then I'm like, but what about some anecdotes? Yeah. <laughs> but I did it, it is, it is how we treat our lives. You know, we do give a lot of, um, cre like, credit to our friends. But I think at the heart of it, I just find other people so interesting. And I find other people's experiences of the world and how they perceive the world so fascinating. And you can have all the data in the world, but that doesn't actually tell you much about people's lives or their feelings. Mm. And especially in a book like that. That's why I thought it was important to have that kind of thing as well. You're not going to... I didn't want to write an academic text and you're not going to relate to a book that is just full of studies. Like, the, heart, the beating heart of the book mm. is other people mm. and a bit myself as well, which I obviously wove through it. Yeah, the memoir element. Clem, you have a sort of disclaimer at the start of How We Love that it's not going to have research, that mm -hmm. it's not data. And it's almost... It's not a an apology for the lack of rage, but you're really letting us know that it's different mm -hmm. to your prior books. Tell us about that decision. What's the motivation for going, all right, I've written Fight Like a Girl, I've written these sort of texts, and now I'm going to write a book about love, ostensibly a soft emo emotion, but mm. I would argue that it's not a soft emotion. But tell me about that choice. Well, the disclaimer is really very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, no, no, and, no, I know. Um, just to let everyone in the audience know that, you know, I kind of make the joke that if you've come to this book expecting to be riled up and, you know, because yeah. I, I get a lot of emails and messages about particularly Fight Like a Girl saying, you know, it's, it's put like a fire in me or it's, it's I'm rageful or, they you know, they read Boys Will Be Boys, which is some, some just terrible things in it mm. about violence and oppression and, mm. you know, the things that men do to women and to themselves. Mm. Um, and the emails about that is is very different. You know, I'm, I'm so distressed, I'm so upset, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of wanted to say, you're probably not going to feel any of that by reading this, but what you will get is a warts and all mm. picture of me. And I might let you down because it turns out that I'm someone who does have a beating heart. Flawed. And is flawed. <laughs> well, I'll, everyone knows that. <laughs> but that, you know, there's a, that soft side mm. to you. It's a softer side it's to soft. me. Um, and I, like anyone else, want to have love in my life. Mm. I don't think it necessarily has to be romantic love, but I, mm. I value love and I'm, you know, very often like other people in my private life, standing before people and and asking them to take care of me yeah. and take care of my heart. Yeah. I'm, did you do research for this book? Did you pour over old diaries and, and messages, chat messages? Oh. There's some fantastic, like, text yeah. flirting that I'm like... You've obviously I'm very gone good back at text through. Yeah. No, no, I know. I'm I was good impressed. Text I'm not very good at relationships, but I'm very good at text flirting. <laughs> yeah, the, the lead-up goes well. Um, um, so did you kind of treat yourself as a research object? Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in my own head and going over, you know, old exchanges. Mm. Um, unfortunately, with the diaries, one of the worst things I ever did to myself was at 19, I burnt all of my old... <gasps> adolescent diaries because I was just so, you know, you're 19 and you're really trying to mm. distinguish yourself from who you've been and mm. you've started university and you have this terrible fear that someone will one day find your diaries. Um, why they would be interested in them, I don't know. How they could find them, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I think I felt 
it was sort of at the time this very performative act mm. of, I, well, I'm an adult now and that silly little girl is in the past and I can forget her. I can pack her up and put her inside a box oh. and no one ever has to know who she was or see her again and then I'll have escaped all of the things that I hated about myself, which, of course, is impossible to do. Mm. But then, as I was saying to you the other night, one of the things that happened while I was writing the book and in spending all of that time poring over old messages and, and having to be in the company of mm. all of these different versions of myself at different ages, it's just very impossible to continue to feel so much disdain mm. for who you were and who you still are mm. when you are in a position where not only are you spending so much time with them, but you're also having to write about them. Mm. It's not a good book to be like, and, and then she was such a loser. And no. She was so You ugly, have to have compassion you know? for your lead character. <laughs> yep. You can make little jokes here and there, but I found that I, it really made, it completely switched my thinking about all of those different girls inside me and made me feel so much compassion and love for them and a lot of regret. And I spent a lot of time apologising to myself for trying to, you mm. know, create that distance and for not loving them. Mm. Each of the essays, if you, if you haven't read the book already, is about a great love that you've had. And writing memoirs exposing already, but the, then to write in detail about people you've fallen into and out of love with. Um, how did you negotiate that process with those people? <laughs> well, I mean, one reaction ends up in the book, which I loved, the boy that you had loved back in the UK, who you get oh, in touch with. Oh, yeah. And that, but that ends up changing your memory of, 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 the, of, the, of that love. Yeah. So how, did that, how does that negotiation process with a memoir like this that's about you but also about key people in your life, how does that work? Well, I wanted to clarify... I want to clarify that it, it is, each chapter is about a great love but not a great romantic love. No. You know, it's like all different kinds of love. Um, and the person that Maeve is referring to is a boy that I was just deeply, desperately in love with when I was 13. And he didn't have, I thought, any clue that I existed. Um, and he was so, just so sweet. He was such a lovely boy. Um, and he was a couple of years older than me. And it was, you know, we were in a small seaside town and there was lots of drinking and smoking and mm. cavorting going on. And I wasn't really doing the cavorting part of it, but I was definitely doing the drinking and the smoking. And... I just have this clear memory of being on a clifftop in this group of kids that I felt really, I was just, refu I refused to talk because I thought if I open my mouth, they're going to know that I'm this big loser. Um, and he took his, it was cold, it was freezing cold because it was, you know, sharing him in summer. <laughs> we were sitting on a clifftop and he saw me shivering and he said, are you, are you cold? And I was like, no, 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 I'm okay. And he just like popped his cigarette into the corner of his lip and just like pulled his Adidas three-stripe <laughs> tracksuit top off and passed it to me. And it was probably still in my mind one of the rom most romantic things <laughs> I can think of. And I, in the book I described putting it on and smelling like the, that sort of heady mix of teenage mm. boy, a little bit of like musky sweat, which <laughs> I'm the, it was ceremonial, <laughs> like, you know, oh, no. the smoke on the jacket. <laughs> And honestly, just like the clouds parted and the sun shone down and I was like, I am in love with this boy and I was so like desperate about it for what felt to me like a lifetime of three months of being in love with him. And then you've written this and told him about it decades later. So I wrote to him and I said, um, I found him on Facebook and I said, you won't remember me at all, you'll have no clue who I am, but I, I wrote this piece 
in my book and I want to send it to you because I think it's really nice sometimes to have people preserve memories of us mm. that we can then give back to them mm. at a certain time. And he said, I do remember you. I remember being very intrigued by you. Mm. I thought that you had... He said, you seemed to, like, have a world going on inside you that no one knew about and you were thoughtful in a way that... This is going to sound a bit sexist, but you were thoughtful in a way that I didn't have that... I didn't think the other girls mm. around us were. He said all this nice stuff and, and I just thought, isn't that so funny? Because then I got... That little 13-year-old mm. girl inside me gets this great gift mm. of all of these years later mm. finding out that someone did the one thing she wanted, which was notice her. I love that. But I love that the process of memoir has this, like, healing element mm. to it. Bridie, in your book, I think the liveliest characters are your family. When you describe <laughs> them, you just come to life. And I've been lucky enough to meet some members of your family, and it's bang on. But I'm mm. interested, as you were... <laughs> some Jabors in the house. Um, <laughs> when you were writing it, you're, you, if your siblings are as opinionated and forthright as you are, was there a, like, family tussle over how you're writing about them? Does there become, or did you just not consult? So, I often say that the most interesting thing about me is my mother, and I'm only <laughs> half joking. Um, no, I uh, seek forgiveness, not permission. Mm-hmm. So, I don't show them anything oh, wow. that I write about them before it's published. But I, um, I actually wrote a novel before this book, and the novel was loosely based on my family. But, like, the people in the novel are really bad people, and, like, they're funny, but they're terrible, and my family is certainly not that terrible. And some people thought, God, your siblings must be so upset to be written about in this way. But my siblings knew it was cartoon versions of mm. themselves. And also, my siblings love attention as much as I do. <laughs> so my sisters, were just, both of them were just like, excuse me, it's amazing. We're basically famous. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, um, and I'm pretty sure that my mum and dad just don't read my books. <laughs> <laughs> I um, know. I think they're used to me. Like um, I've always been so outgoing and loud and forthright, and so I think that everyone's quite used to the mm-hmm. embarrassing stories or saying how we feel. And we all are like that anyway. It's how we were raised. I love that. It's a little bit like um, I did this talk on Steel Magnolias yesterday, and one of my favourite stories from that movie is that when Robert Harling, the screenwriter, went back to Natchitoches, where you know, which is where. The characters mm. were based on he based the character of Weezer, who was Shirley MacLaine in it, you know, this caustic, yeah. great character, based it on a real woman in the town, and he was terrified that she would know who it was her. But what happened was every woman in the town was like, he based okay. that one on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Weezer. <laughs> yeah, I think that actually, because especially my sisters, I think that the good bits of the characters, they were like, yeah, that's me. Mm-hmm. And the bad bits, they were like, oh, that part's made up. <laughs> Um, You both write about parenting a lot and your own kids, which we will get to talk about, but you also talk about being parented, and I think that that process of of having kids, I I presume for you two, based on the way you've written about it, there's this reckoning where you suddenly look at your parents in a new light once you become a parent. Um, Bridie, how has the way you were parented impacted your writing and your parenting? Uh, So I was parented in a, like, incredibly unique way, which I realise now, um, but back then I thought was very normal and everyone else was parented like this. And it was like two very unique things. One was that my parents, and there's a lot of kids, um, there was five five of us mostly in the house, five kids growing up in a three-bedroom house, so it was very rowdy. 
and no concept of personal space at all. Um, but they just completely and utterly accepted us for who we are and had no, didn't push any interests or expectations on us. Like my mum certainly had expectations about going to school and working mm. hard, but that's it. Like they, they were so interested in us as people and what we were interested in. And so there was never any comparing of us. And I, you might be surprised to know, aced school. Mm. I was great <laughs> at school. And so I got great marks and like was very um, into books and, and read a lot of books and achieved really, really well in the HSC. Uh, my brother failed the HSC. <laughs> and, well, he says he didn't fail. I said this to him a few months ago, and he's like, I didn't fail. I got 40-something. Mm. And I was like, Seamus, that's failing. <laughs> <laughs> but my parents didn't care. Like, they would yeah. never, ever have said to him, who is, like, his own interesting, fun person, why aren't you more like Bridie? Why don't you study yeah. like Bridie? He never studied or rarely picked up a book in his teenage years. And now he's an ICU nurse, so he's got, like, mm. a way more important job than me and he's way <laughs> more impressive. But they didn't mind. They just took – and so – and my siblings are really good at sport. I was so bad at sport. I'm shocked. That my, <laughs> my younger sister, when I was in year 10 and she was in year 7 – played a higher grade of hockey than me. <laughs> That's how bad I was. And they were all really good dancers, my siblings, and they won lots of trophies and lots of Stedfords, Seamus included, all of them were, and he also won loads of football trophies. So they had like a whole cabinet of trophies. And one year at the end of Irish dancing, they gave me the special encouragement award. Because <laughs> I was so bad, but I kept turning up. But my, and again, my parents didn't mind. They yeah. were just so accepting of us and so interested in, who we are, who we were and what we were interested in and sort of became interested in whatever we were interested in. And so it gave us a lot of, um, I don't know, autonomy and just like makes you feel like a real person. I think it is a lot where all our innate confidence mm. comes from because we were so loved and accepted mm. from the beginning. And the second way they parented that was incredibly <laughs> unique in the 90s and is probably still incredibly unique now, um, they actually parented equally. <laughs> Whoa. Hmm. Yeah, so my dad did my hair for school. Yeah. My dad cooked loads of the meals. Uh, my mum was the breadwinner for a lot of my childhood, uh, working full-time as a nurse. And uh, so we had – they shared us equally mm. and cared for us equally. And I did not think that, that it was that unusual growing up at all. The first person who I told I had my period was my father, mm -hmm. just because we were that close and it was that normal and he was the one – who was at home at the time. And then I rang my mum who was at work and told her and said, please don't tell anyone. And then the next time I went to her work, the maternity unit, all the nurses were like, oh my God, Bridie, you got your period. <laughs> <laughs> but having, they would, I don't think they would describe themselves as feminists, but that, it was like a true feminist upbringing, mm. like in the values lived, up, lived out and they're also very into, you know, social justice. And that certainly imprinted on the way what I mm. expected in my relationships when I was mm. an adult and how I parented as well. And it was never a question in my partnership that we wouldn't be equals and we wouldn't be doing well, equal you're right parenting. about that, but that also people really congratulate you because your partner is an equal parent and are really shocked that you have free time because you split the load. And you write about that in your book. Yeah, they're right. Like they do... I do get a lot of comments about how amazing he is for parenting, which can be slightly annoying, but also he is just a much better person than me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, this is politically fraught, but also accurate. Yeah, he is like much nicer and funnier and lovelier than me. But I do get a lot of comments about it, which can be frustrating. But yes, it, and, it, and a lot of people, so what a lot of people say to me is, I've got two kids. 
under four and they're like, how do you find time to write books and how do you find time to party? <laughs> well, you have heaps of time when you are in an equal partnership mm -hmm. and when you are doing equal parenting. Mm. That's the answer. It's, and it is kind of sad to me how many people are shocked by it and how mm. unique, I guess, it still is. Mm. Clem, how was your parenting... How is your career as a writer <clears throat> impacted by the way you were parented? Mm. Well, very different experience to mm. Bridie here. Uh, mm. My parents loved to compare the children. Oh, God. Um, and, I, you know, I say that... Then they weren't bad people. No. But there was a lot of comparison between my, me and my sister and our bodies, oh. which was obviously great. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you know, like one of us would lose weight and the other one would be told, well, why can't you be more like the other sister or encouraged, oh, you, do, you look so great. You're doing mm. so well. Do you need that second helping? Mm. Um, very kind of fucked up sort of it's just stuff that you just there's no amount of therapy that can undo that no we had rough um, body image stuff in my family and yeah. it's still in my brain yeah and then just kind of like there was a there was a lot of pressure a lot of weird pressure on academic success but coupled with a total lack of interest in schooling mm. um so you're just sort of expected to achieve academically but my parent neither of my parents could have told you anything that was going on mm. at school I was often late to school because my mum um you know she was she also was like clinically depressed and my dad was working away from, he was working overseas so he wasn't around and my mum just slept all day and so mm. we were often like not at school on time. And actually I kind of reference this in the book and it's going to sound like a very fucking middle class problem to have and it is, I get it. But when you are a sort of like type A personality, high achieving mm. perfectionist girl in a school that... I also went to this school that had this very weird kind of, um, like, diabolical system of leadership amongst the students where there was, like, tiers of leadership. So there, was, there were two campuses next, right next to each other separated literally by a tiny little lane. Mm. And so the two campuses were always in competition with each other academically. It was the brainchild of the, the principal who was just, honestly, like, I think a sociopath. Um, <laughs> And so then on the top of that, there'd be there were 12 college prefects who had jurisdiction over the whole school. Mm. Um, and then there were, tw within that, there were, so there were six on each campus. And then there were 12 on each campus, campus prefects who only had jurisdiction on their side of the lane. And that was all in year 12. And then in year 11, there were campus seniors. There were 24 campus seniors on each. So it was sort of like a pyramid of yeah. power. 24 campus seniors on each campus who did things like Patrolled, they called it patrol. Patrolled lunchtime um, for students who weren't wearing their hats or who, who were doing something naughty and you could give them tickets to go and have detention or lines, which, look, really appealed to me when I was like a perfectionist <laughs> kind of little... Um, it's pretty scary when you think about... You have no control in your own life. Yeah. But then you go to school and someone's like, you can give a ticket to someone. Um <laughs> And I really it's wanted like to be... Creating tiny cops. It was also kind of like, exactly. It, yeah. was, it, was, a, it was a school that kind of had a... Um, it wasn't particularly, like, rich or anything like mm. that. But it seemed like no other school that I'd been to to have this sort of... Because I think of this weird pyramid of power, this aspirational um, vibe in it where it was really cool to be smart and to mm. do well at school, um, which isn't bad in and of itself, obviously, but part of being smart and good at school meant becoming a prefect. 
And I really wanted to be a prefect, but um, my homeroom teacher took my name out of the running to be voted for because I was often late to school in the morning. And I'm telling that story just not only to sort of like give a little insight into this diabolical academic institution that I spent the last two years of my schooling in, but also because it's so weird to me that no one thought to ask why Why I was always late to school. Anyway, so there was a lot of kind of like absentee parenting Mm. in my house, um, which I touch on in the book. A lot of comparison. And I think that that, in terms of like how that informs my writing, on the positive side, there's probably a lot of freedom Mm. to the way that I write because I don't feel like I have anyone to impress in my family. Um, I don't feel overly like bonded to the idea of not being honest about it. Mm. But at the same time, like, it's not like, you know, it wasn't like a horrible upbringing. No. Um, and I think probably I have, like, massively deep issues with self-esteem. Like, when I was thinking, listening to you talk, I just thought that just sounds like five kids raised with really amazing self-esteem and wouldn't it be incredible if everyone was raised that way? <laughs> too much self-esteem sometimes. Well, maybe, but... Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, know, we think we're well the loved, most yeah. interesting people in the world. <laughs> and we really reinforce that with each other too. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that the maybe the lack of self-esteem is probably... Um, brings something to the writing as well. Yeah. I'd say. An urge yeah. to be kind of understood and seen. And yeah, I think an yeah. urge to explain yourself and to kind of... Yeah, explore, explore. Well, and also a willingness to kind of talk about all the things that are bad mm. in you, like mm. all of the, like to share. I'm not afraid of like sharing a bad image of myself. Mm. I always think that I will always sacrifice my dignity for a joke or a good story. Hmm. Like that, the 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 priority is entertaining someone, mm. even if I'm at my own expense. Well, my parents also used to say, you know, this has kind of had a big a really big impact on how I view myself and the worth that I feel I have to other people Mm. in my private relationships Mm. is that my parents would always say, you know, in the 80s, people had a lot of dinner parties for work, that kind of thing. And they would always say, you can come down and say goodnight to everyone, but don't hang around and talk too much because we love you, but no one else is interested in what you have to say. And I kind of internalised that as I was growing up and I, I did that thing that kids often do where they're like, well, everything that my parents do is the best way to raise children. And right. so, of course, no one is interested in what children have mm. to say and, of course, no one's interested in what I have to say. So in order for me to be of value to people, I need to be sparkle, mm. sparkle, entertaining, always have something clever and, and be funny, which is why I'm so great at text flirting. Oh. But the moment that you kind of have to have a real... <laughs> interaction with someone or you have to like allow them to see the times when you're not entertaining Mm. and funny and that you might be a little bit boring or a bit ugly in Mm. your personality is shut it down yeah you both but it's great for writing about yes (laughs) yes um I also love a good text flirt um you're both parents now and I found two of the parts I found most affecting in both books, possibly because I'm recently a parent myself, is when you talk about fearing for your kids' safety. There's a, a point, um, Bridie, and I was listening to yours on audiobook when the voice just says, when I was watching my son die, and I kind of gripped, and then I was like, oh, no, I know, Bridie, I know this story, it's okay. <laughs> um, and you, Clem, have this wonderful uh, story about watching your son be about to step out into a road. And it is this kind of mm. gripping thing. And you, um, do, you share that quote about watching your heart move around outside your body. How does that vulnerability um, of, 
of parenthood because there is this huge vulnerability that hits you intersect with having a public persona and a, mm. and a writing career. Like, how do you marry those two together, Bridie? Uh, I think it's definitely like it's it's just riddled with cliche. I think whenever you talk about your love for your yes. kids, <laughs> don't like because you become like so dramatic about it and overwrought, and everything feels like it's been said before and also the cliches are cliches for a reason because they're true but it's def it's made me more empathetic to people to a lot of different people and also I can't um read about well this is kind of beside the point but I can't read about any news story where a child is hurt or mm. dies anymore and it seems like well it's kind of bad in journalism but it also seems like quite a lame thing but I still there is something open inside of you now yeah. That you're never going to be able. It's like very it's sensitive and yeah. <laughs> that as well. Um, but there is like there is something more sensitive, and I think it's made me a more empathetic person and more sensitive person. I think makes me a, a better writer mm. because I think I was quite an ironic and caustic person, caustic, caustic, however you say it. Caustic when um caustic. in my late teens and my twenties, and I think that it only adds another, another dimension to you and makes you more interesting mm. when you can show a more vulnerable mm. side of yourself. And also, it puts a lot of another cliche. It puts a lot of things into perspective. You know, I've had some big scares with my children after I wrote the book. Actually, just before it came out, we were involved in this car accident in North oh. Queensland where the car, I was in a car with my husband, myself and my two kids in the back and we were hit by a truck mm. on the highway and it rolled three times. Oh, my God. And I was completely, and I was sitting in the back with my kids and I, this is ridiculous, but I put an arm in front of each child, like mm. that would have done anything, like to protect them. Mm. And I was totally conscious for it rolling and knew it was happening. Time really did slow down and I was like, don't roll again, don't roll again, and we rolled again. Mm. And you're like, don't roll again, don't roll again. And then we rolled again and we rolled three times. So the triple O call that goes through is car hit by truck in a hundred zone. So high speed rolls three times. They dispatched a helicopter mm -hmm. because usually what happens in that kind of accident is horrific. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's horrific. Uh, usually someone's dead there or at least one person's dead or severely <laughs> injured. And we all walked away from it. I broke my shoulder saving my kid's life, as I was told them. <laughs> but, um, but that experience puts life into such sharp focus mm. and really does make you realise what's important. And there's still parts of that accident that I carry around with myself. And mm. it did change the way that I live a little bit, but it also makes your writing better too. Mm. <laughs> Everything's coffee. Mm. But it makes you more vulnerable and mm. honest, I think, in your writing, and that just makes better writing mm. too. Mm. So I think that um, having children, any life experience really does make you a more interesting and better writer, and I think having children is one of those things, mm -hmm. mm. which is funny because we don't really usually associate motherhood with creativity. Mm. Well, yeah, and one of the things we were discussing earlier was this kind of expectation of mothers to go straight back to work and the ability to kind of do everything all at once. How's it been for you um, with also an incredibly public persona, rushing back to work, having the baby? Mm. How do you think it's changed your career? Um, well, I just relate to, except for the car accident bit, obviously, and that must have been, oh, just I can't even imagine how terrified mm. you would have been. It doesn't bear thinking about. Mm. Um, but I relate strongly to everything Bridie said about it mm. making you a better having kids isn't a passport to becoming a more empathetic person. No. But I think that maybe 
if you are... Um, I can only speak for me as a writer. I feel like it's made my writing better because as a writer I am interested in the world around me mm. and I'm interested in exploring my my movement through that world. And obviously when you bring that perspective of parenting to writing and mm. having suddenly this this thing that you you will always care about way more than you care about yourself. Mm. Um, I think that, that that changes the way that you kind of explore the world. Mm. Um, I was pregnant when I wrote Fight Like a Girl mm. and it came out seven weeks after Franco... Sorry, I never say his name, sorry. Um, it came... Admit it from memory. <laughs> came out seven weeks after he was born. So I went on book tour around the country with the seven-week-old, which mm. is actually a lot easier than you think. Yeah. Um, when they're huh, small, you can just cart them around. Tiny. They, it was just strapped to my chest. And, and also I feel like... I think because I never took a break... Yeah. And I just kind of kept, you know, I was walking around. I never, I didn't take any time off of work. I have always worked from home, so I didn't have to go into the office or anything like that. But I would walk around with him in the baby carrier or pushing the pram around. And, and I, the thing I found most challenging about having a, having a baby was, firstly, I didn't really have any experience with tiny humans. Mm. I liked babies before. I was like, they're so cute. Um, but I didn't realise how relentless the contact would be with a child. Mm. And, and I, I say that seriously because he just never wanted to be away from me. Like I couldn't mm. even put him down mm. in, a, in a bassinet or anything like that because he would cry. He always wanted to be near me, which is so beautiful in a way. But And also makes sense. Huh. No, yeah. it drives you insane. <laughs> but it's, it's also very hard. Um, but I would be walking around typing articles on my phone, you know, while I was kind of jostling him to yeah. get to sleep. Um, but I think now that that was such a gift to me because I never, you know, and, and, and writers, you'll understand that, you, we all understand that if you, it's a discipline and it's a practice and if you take a little bit of time off of writing, the writer's block is real. Mm. Like that fear, it's like, it's like if you run mm. and then you don't run for a while, you're like, mm. oh God, I'm scared of going for a run. Um, so because I never stopped, I just kind of didn't fall into that, um, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. I think because early newborn days, particularly if you're a primary carer, are so relentless. And a lot of people who do it report feeling like they have lost their creativity or they've lost their ability to do mm. things or, or they even think that, you know, just the fog of no sleep makes it so impossible to think. Mm. But because I was constantly practising it and constantly mm. having to be engaged with the news cycle, I kind of didn't fall off that path. Mm. And then when he was 18 months old, I wrote Boys Will Be Boys, which was, um, you know, a juggle of... It made... Because the, the time was so precious, the time away from him to write was so precious, I really made use of every chunk of time that mm. I had. And I had to be really disciplined, mm. which which again improved my writing in a way that I wouldn't have been forced to before. And then I wrote How We Love in the Lockdown when yeah. I was by that stage a single mum with good support from his dad, sure, but, um, you know, locked down in Melbourne in a house with, uh, so, you know, someone who was then a three-year-old mm. and having to kind of again use the time, but also because it was such a different book, be really introspective about mm. what it all meant. Well, because this, I, I had a question because both books make their way into 2020 and lockdown and kind of the impact of that 
on your worldview. Um, I'm going to go back to my actual note and what, see what I said. Yeah, we see you adapt it, adapting to it. We see you parenting within it. But you're also... I mean, one of the things I found in 2020 writing, I was like, how do I write about this as it's unfolding? And maybe it's the journalists within you. But to comment on world events as they're happening and then commit it to print, mm. were you afraid that you'd sort of look back on it and go, oh, I got that wrong? Like, how does, how does it feel without hindsight to be kind of living within a book that you thought was one thing and then is changing because of what's happening around you? Bridie? Well, I got the book deal in February 2020. <laughs> so that's when I signed it. And I was already pregnant at the time with my second. Got it in February 2020 and then obviously we all know what happened the month after that. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> and then I had my baby in June. So my baby is like one of the first pandemic babies. Yeah. And, um, and then I kept writing. But no, I wasn't worried. Like I, I, what I was committing to paper was not like, the fact of how the pandemic turned out or whatever, I knew that I was just writing about how it felt that year. Yeah. And so I was fine with committing it to paper. And I actually didn't want to put too much into it because I thought by the time this book comes out, the pandemic will be over. Twenty twenty one, like everyone's gonna be sick of hearing about it. <laughs> so I didn't put that much in, but I I knew that I wasn't going to be incorrect about how it felt at that moment. Mm. And I mainly just wrote about how it felt at that moment and didn't make it really a big part of the book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, um, yeah, everything, as you said, and as Nora Ephron, obviously, the great Nora Ephron also said, everything is copy. And so when I was in lockdown, I, yeah, I wasn't like, again, like I wasn't sort of reporting from the front lines of the pandemic. I was just like, this is what it feels like to be trapped in a home. Yeah. But it was kind of great for me because I was able to do a parallel back and forth between yeah. describing what it was like to have a newborn and the terror of that and the relentless kind of boredom of it. Yeah. And the feeling that things would, you would never, like there was a whole world going on outside and you couldn't be a part of it because you were just trapped inside with mm. this tiny little baby. And then comparing that to how lockdown felt, which was exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, my God, I said the same thing. I said a similar thing where I was like, lockdown's like being pregnant. Yeah. Like, you can't, like, you can't. Except with a lot world. more alcohol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we had, my, we had our baby uh, in July last year so, and lived in an LGA with none of our friends and family. So we literally spent the first four and a half months of parenting seeing no one but each other mm. and the occasional nurse. So I have no idea what those start months Aha! In a context that isn't that bizarre, mm. and we still kind of look back at it now and we go, "Is this trauma? What is happening?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, and it's and it's a very strange thing to do to a relationship as well. Mm. For, for us, that we found like being locked in that house together, and you, you sort of both have reflected on that. Both of you write about marriage, um, both in the traditional sense of you're married, but also a, as a partnership, um, commitment, cohabitation, having children. But what I found interesting about your book, Clem, is that I found the chapters about your friends far more rom romantic than... they are. Yes. <laughs> and I, I'd like you to speak to that because, you, yeah, you speak about your friends as your great loves and then you speak about the times you've fallen in love beautifully but not with, mm. I, I think, the same passion. Did you notice that as you were writing? Was it purposeful? Well, I have long been of the view that the the romantic love that we have for our friends is more is often more profound and obviously long lasting mm. and like soul penetrating mm. 
than the romantic love that we feel for a sexual partner. There are things that you can, there are intimacies that you can share with a friend, a good friend, that you either would choose not to share with a romantic lover or you would just feel like it was inappropriate to share with mm. them. Um, there's a depth that you can get to. So I describe in the book my friend Libby, who is in the book, her name is Billy. Very subtle, clever. It was a subtle <laughs> Very I was clever like, I know exactly switch, who this is, Claire. Switcheroo. <laughs> um, but I describe the, the, you know, when we became friends, there was a, a point at which it could have gone down a lover path but I knew that that would have limited the way that we could connect with each other. And I describe it as being like, you know, everyone puts so much stock into this idea of finding a lover that that's the ultimate love that you need to find. That if you don't find that, in fact, mm. even though, and I'm not saying this to be glib, but even though a lot of people, probably the majority are just kind of like, if they were in their heart of hearts about their, their, their partner or their spouse, whatever, they're fine. They're fine. It's all right. They're see, fine. I see that. And I, I see people say that. I mean, that's not your experience, though, when you talk about But that's marriage. rare. I really do think that that's rare to kind of, like, have someone who sparks everything. That's the problem is but that But he people... doesn't spark everything. So I really agree with yeah. you. I think one of the re – like, I am – so irritatingly in love with my husband. Like, it's super annoying for a lot of people. And I've been in love with him for a very long time, like most of my adult life. And I think that one of the reasons our relationship works and I'm still excited to see him every day, and I really am excited to see him every yeah, day. Yeah, it's gross. I love it. <laughs> but it's because... But he's not everything to me. Like, yeah. I have incredibly close, rich friendships. And I have things that I tell my best friends that I would never tell my husband. Mm. And they understand me in a different way, just like my hus husband understands me in a different way. Like, he doesn't need to be my best friend. He certainly doesn't need to be my fucking mother. Like, mm. he doesn't need to be my brother. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't need to be everything. Like, we, mm. we have an incredibly intimate relationship with him and I'm in love with him in a way that I don't love anyone else in my life. But he's, he doesn't give me everything. Mm -hmm. So I completely agree with mm. you on that. Like, there are things that you take from the other people in your life that you love. And I think that that's why my relationship works mm. so well because I don't expect him to be all those roles. Yeah. And I don't think he expects that of me either. Mm. And I think that that's not reflective of what the culture... Totally. How the culture yeah. frames yeah. marriages. That, you know, this idea that somehow you would need to have... I don't know, like people... I'm so excited to marry my best friend. and I know, that always makes me queasy you know, as like, well. It's not your best friends for you. But here's friends the, not for marrying. Here's the thing. If I... I mean, I'm gay. I've <laughs> fucked a lot of my best friends. <laughs> but my partner's not my best friend. But no, if I, if I married legally or whatever, if I married a platonic friend, like if I was like, this is my platonic friend, we don't sleep together, but we are deeply in love mm. and we want to spend... And it's it, more and more people are doing this kind of thing mm. now, but... Um, we want to spend the rest of our lives together. We're going to buy a house together. Mm. Do you know what? We love each other so much. We're going to sleep in a bed together. Mm. We're going to have a business together. Mm. People would be like, that is weird. Yeah. That's weird that you're doing that. Mm. And if you're spending all of this time with your, this platonic person who you, you must be sleeping with them, sure. Yeah. You can be honest. You must be. If you're spending all this time with them. How are you ever going to meet someone? Mm. And it's like, you have met someone. Yeah. You might also be able to have sex with lots of other people and that's the primary relationship in your life and the fact that we still live in this kind of mentality where uh, something that is so enriching yeah. and where you, you know, I talk about like love really is about wanting the desire to be known mm. 
And so your greatest lovers, whether or not you sleep with them or not, mm. and oftentimes the ones who you don't sleep with mm. are the ones who are really the witnesses. You want to witness in your life. Well, we have such a, yeah, an odd view of, of romantic versus non-romantic partnerships. When we were trying to conceive, we went through IVF and our donor is a dear friend of mine for the past 18 years. And we had to do special counselling to make sure that it wouldn't go badly between us mm. and the donor, my friend of 18 years. But no one checked that Nikki and I had been together for six years, weren't going to split up. And it's far more common for people to divorce their partners than their friends. But it mm. is this kind of idea that that why would friendship be less sure than mm. a romantic partnership? And look, I told the counsellor this and they still let us do IVF, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, could, I had so many other questions, but I'm very aware that uh, the audience might have questions for you. Um, so if you want to make your way, we've got microphones on either side of the stage here. And if for access reasons you can't get to the microphones, feel free to either shout or pop a hand up and one of the ushers can ferry your words. Um, have we got any questions? I can keep going through mine, but if you've... Yeah, hop on up. Thank you. Um, this one's for Clem. Um, loved the book, especially Thank chapter you. one about your mum. Mm. I was in tears on the plane on the way back to the UK mm -hmm. after two and a half years. Um, I guess, how did you... Because obviously it is like a diary and you're putting it out to the world. How did you kind of... Did you have any moments where you were like, OK, I'm not doing this or... Mm. It was um, too much. Too much, yeah. And kind of how many stories didn't make the book? Mm. I feel like I have always tried to be a mostly honest writer. And I'm, like I said, I'm not afraid of showing me in, you know, behaving badly. Um, and I really, I've had so much experience in writing about grief because my mum died 15 years ago and I, and I was already by that stage. Oh no, just after she died, I got my first public writing job. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I'm curious to know as well if you two agree that there's something about, I know we've said it again and again, but the, the everything is copy thing really is true because there's something about being able to write through something or explore it and, and understand it through words that distances you from the emotional gravity of it. You feel the emotional gravity, but... I have to say that even when my mum was, I knew that when I sort of, sort of had accepted that my mum was going to die, there was some part of me that was like, this is going to be real, it's going to be a, a great story. And that, that sounds... The, oh, sorry, that, that was one of the most compelling parts of the book for me when you admitted that even in grief, you're seeing yourself as an external eye, because I do yeah. that too in hard times. And I was like, oh, to admit that, that even in the hardest times we can still have this kind of main character Yeah, how, how's this going to turn out for the main character? What are the lines going to be? That kind of thing. Um, and I think that that sounds diabolical to voice it out loud, but I actually think a lot of people are like that yeah. and maybe just don't, aren't as you know, willing to admit it as I am. Um, Do you think it's essential for memoir writing, that kind of ability to kind of look at yourself as a character? Of course, I think so. You've got to, you've got to be able to... I mean, the, the thing is as well, like I say in the, in the opening kind of intro, um, I, you know, that I'm writing all these stories from my own life. I'm almost certain most of them are true. Mm. Because, of course, memory is so fallible. And, you know, I was, I was actually, I did a show in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago um, and a girl that was what, my best friend when I was 10 years old, and we weirdly li both lived in the Middle East, 
you know, parents' jobs, that kind of thing. And she ended up, she's Scottish, but she ended up in Adelaide and she, we'd chatted a little bit over the years, but this was the first time I'd seen her in 30 years. And my memory, of course, of, of that time and the last time I saw mm. her was that I was kind of frozen out of this group and she, because I'd come back to England, come back from England to there for a visit and I was so deep in the grips of an eating disorder and I'd lost all this weight. And, of course, at 13, I was like, I'm so skinny now. Mm. Um, but still obsessed and very unwell. And I thought that they'd all, they just all hated me. And I was like, well, I've lost all this weight and they still don't like me. And she said, oh, you changed when you came back. You just All you would do was talk about calories and you just drink mm. Diet Coke. And I thought that you were too cool for me and that you'd gone. And, and I was like, it's so funny how, yeah. how our perceptions of things are different. But... So all of the stories in the book feel real to me and they feel true, but who's to say whether or not the other people who were there agree? Thank you. Bridie, <laughs> you also write about kind of main character syndrome and, and the kind of notion that we're the protagonists in our own coming-of-age dramas. Um, but you also look at millennials and whether or not it's unique to us, that quality. Can you talk about what you kind of discovered in that process whilst somebody else comes to the mic? I, yes, I did write about that and, um, and what I also wrote about was the realisation that you're not the protagonist of reality <laughs> and what a relief that can be. Like yeah. it can be confronting at first but it also could actually be a big relief which is also a relief of um, becoming a parent, like not thinking about yourself all of the time mm. and not thinking that you're the centre of the universe is actually a great and comforting thing. Mm. So, yeah, we're not, yeah, I'm not, I'm, say it on stage, I'm not the main character, but I know I still yeah, secretly right, think right. it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question? Um, yeah, uh, first, it's to Clem. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for the advocacy work you've done over the past couple of years around COVID and more recently oh, about you. Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. I want to thank, thank you, you for that. Um, yeah. Um, sometimes when we experience a creative work, we get a sense of um, the person who created it achieved everything hmm. that they wanted to in that work. I very much got that sense with how we love, and I know I'm kind of inviting you to blow smoke out of your own ass, but <laughs> but when you got to the end of it, did you go, you know, I really fucking nailed this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> great question. Thank Love you. that question. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your kind words. Um, and particularly, you know, it's, it's, I love that that was your impression as a reader that you got to the end and you thought that I'd nailed it. Um, but no, absolutely not. Of course not. Like, you always get to the end of a book and you're like, that is rubbish. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to put it into the world. And then you have a sufficient distance from it and you... Because you you've spent so much time with it. It's like staring at your own f face in the mirror for 10 months straight yeah. and, and trying to find all of the things about it that are interesting and compelling and, and then also needing to point out all of the things about it that are not great. And, and then at the end of it, you're like, you know what, I'm just sick of my face. I'm sick of my voice. And then and you then, have to record an audio book. And then, you, well, by the, t stage you record, <laughs> by the time you record the audio book, that was when I was like, some of this book is really good. Nice. Um, but in the edits and stuff, you just you, you read it through and you just think, no one's going to read this. It's, it's, it's so boring. It's not funny. It's, I'm too indulgent. And in parts, obviously, that's why you edit, because you are too indulgent. So I took some of the more indulgent bits out and replaced them with some jokes for a bit of levity or whatever. But um, I feel now when I look at it with a, a distance of 
six months since it's come out and almost a year since I've since I basically finished it there's parts of it that I'm really proud of and stories that I think I told really well and that you know one of the things I think I said this to you the other night one of the things that I'm most proud of is that that first chapter which is about mm. my mum has, has probably been the one that's gotten the strongest response um, because obviously everyone can kind of relate to the idea of what it would feel like to lose their mum and some people have had that experience but the thing that I'm most proud of with it is that she was a woman who had a lot of challenges in her life, you know, a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of things that prevented her from achieving all of the brilliant things that I know that she would have been capable of had she been born in a different time to a different mother in a different set of circumstances. Um, and, you know, she was forced to leave school at 13 and never, never achieved a high school grad, you know, um, education but brilliantly smart, very mm. self-taught. And I think probably when she died, there may, she, I know she had a sense that she hadn't like appreciated it all and she hadn't done the things that she wanted to do and that you know, she'd been kind of like, she'd allowed the mental illness to sort of overtake the last few years of her life, just in terms of being fearful to kind of go places. Um, but now I think thousands and thousands and thousands of people have cried mm. about the fact that she died. And that's just, I just feel like as a daughter, that's such a gift to be able to give that to her. So that's the thing that I'm the most proud of in the mm. book. Thank you. Bridie, when you looked back at Trivial Grievances with a bit of distance, did you nail it? You honour your mother really beautifully in it as well and, and her kind of history and her connection to Ireland. And so w when you look at this piece of you um, that you created, how do you feel? I'm really proud of it. And I think it's a, I think, I think it's a really interesting book. And, <laughs> but, but it is true when you're going through the editing process, you do think, like you get over it and you think it's terrible. And actually just before this, Clementine got me to sign my novel, uh, which came out a few years ago and I was actually kind of embarrassed that you had bought it because I like I'm you know I, you're a bit embarrassed of your past work and mm. I'm like god I wrote that so long ago and I would do it so much better now but in the editing process I had that feeling at different times that when I got my final proofs it had been months since I last read it and I do remember at that point of the editing process my dad was visiting and he was in the apartment and I was going through the final proof you read it in physical form and just basically fix up grammar and spelling mm. mistakes and whatever and I'm reading it and I'm giggling away and dad's like, oh, how, like, how's the work going? And I'm just like, dad, fuck, I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I think sometimes you love it and sometimes you hate it. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. That's mm. delightful though, to be able to go back to your own work and find the humour in it or, or mm. be moved by it. I mean, that's such a gift of both the craft mm. of writing, but also being at a place in your life where you're able to do that, where you're able to see the magic in what you've made. That's fantastic. It's that external eye as well, where you're like, yeah. you're reading it through and you're like, oh God, I'm good. <laughs> this is why I was surprised I'm that you good. burnt the diaries because you weren't like when I'm famous. I'm so regretful yeah. of it yeah. now. Someone I'd love to reread them, although they probably they just very kind of toxic in yeah. all the ways but yeah look on that note of of funny moving and pretty pleased with ourselves collectively i think we'll wrap this up um thank you so much to clem and bridie for chatting with us today and to all of you for joining us
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.